Star Wars, give me those Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars, don't let them Star Wars, those dear and Star Wars, talking about Star Wars on the podcast. Welcome to Give Me Those Star Wars, the official Star Wars show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and my guest this time out appeared on the previous episode sharing his thoughts on the passing of Carrie Fisher, and before that, he appeared on my Dead Both and Spies podcast in 2015, just before the theatrical release of The Force Awakens. If I'm Frank Costanza, he's my cape-wearing lawyer played by Larry David. So please <coughs> welcome my good friend Omar. How are you, buddy? Hello, my friend. I'm, I'm glad to be back, and I'm, uh, yeah, glad to be with everyone. We talked about how and when you first discovered Star Wars back on Dead Bath and Spies, but this is a different podcast with a potentially new audience, so would you mind sharing a somewhat brief account of your Star Wars origin story? I wish I had a more original origin story for how I got into it. Um, you know, I am around the same age as you, you know, uh, just by way of editorial comment, you and I have been friends going back to our hometowns. So we've been friends for about 18 or 19 years, and we're also around the same age. So I was born in 81. So I'm coming into the world basically in the middle, in the height of all the Star Wars rage. And like, you have to remember, by the time I was like three or four, that was when, you know, like sort of the, the rights to broadcast the movies were first being given to the, the big studio networks and you know movies of the week were like a big deal on the networks back in the day like if you're if star wars is being shown like on abc at like thursday night at 7 p.m you're gonna get like 30 or 40 million people watching that and like i certainly was one of those people uh, one of the first vhs movies i ever rented was return of the jedi uh i was obsessed with it I, you know I, I kept the vhs tape i didn't give it back uh incurred serious <laughs> Serious, serious fees. So thankfully, American Video and Downtown DeKalb, Illinois, has since closed. So I never actually uh, rectified that mistake. And and I, I loved Return of the Jedi. It spoke to me. And and you know, as I got older and I got a little more sophisticated in my movie watching habits, the greatness of The Empire Strikes Back sort of unfolded. And I've been obsessed with those movies for as long as I've been alive. I can you know the the prequels aside, I can basically tell you every line of dialogue from all three of the original films. And, you know, their lasting power is pretty impressive. So, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm pretty just much a garden variety obsessive fan. And I will say before the advent of the web, I didn't realize that other people were as obsessive about this, these movies as I was. So it's been a real pleasure to sort of realize that, like, it wasn't just a psychosis that I was <laughs> afflicted. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was certainly there with you. And one of the things that we connected over. So, oh, yeah. Like, you remember, you know, you remember, like, in the, it was the fall of 98. This must have been my senior year, your junior year of high school. You recorded because they announced on the local news or the national broadcast that they were going to show the teaser trailer for The Phantom Menace on TV. Mm -hmm. And like you recorded that. <laughs> and like I think you had like a viewing party. Uh, it was tremendous. It was, yeah, it was probably like, sadly, it was probably one of the 15 or 20 highlights of my life. Uh, that viewing party for that two-minute trailer. Oh, I've said too much. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, we'll move on from there. There are a few bits of news to talk about in our Star Wars current events segments. As always, for my listeners, this part of the show may contain mild spoilers for upcoming Star Wars movies or events. I try to keep that to a minimum. If you don't want to hear this part, skip ahead to the next segment. I will post the start times in the show notes for this episode. Okay, that was your spoiler warning. 
We lead off with the bombshell that dropped earlier this week. The official Star Wars website, StarWars.com, revealed the title to Star Wars Episode Eight. The film, written and directed by Ryan Johnson and heading to theaters this December, is called Star Wars The Last Jedi. All right, Omar, without speculating too much on the implications, just general first impressions, what did you think of the title when you first heard it? It's funny because I, at first glance, at least from the perspective of, like, syntax and, like, marketing, these Star Wars titles always hit my ear a bit oddly. I'm never as excited about the title when I first hear them. I mean, I I can't speak to what people were thinking in, like, you know, 1979 when they found out it would be The Empire Strikes Back, or in 1981 when they thought it would be Revenge of the Jedi, later Return of the Jedi. But, like, The Last Jedi seems awkward. And I think maybe it's just hitting my ear wrong because, technically speaking, if we're going sequentially, the word Jedi appeared in a fairly recent film. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not recent, like, in terms of, like, when it was released. Certainly, Return of the Jedi was released, ah, oh, geez, 34 years ago now. But sequentially, chronologically, it was not that long ago. So you go from Return of the Jedi and then The Force Awakens and then The Last Jedi. It's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, that's it just feels like going back to the well. Again, I'm saying this without knowing anything of the plot, sure, yeah. uh, obviously. But it just seems a little bit awkward. It's just like when I first heard it, I was like very excited that like the wheels had been in motion, and like more than anything, this sort of was a symbolic flashpoint that like, oh, this film is coming out in like a T minus eleven months. But I was like, huh, really? But you know, I'm not gonna lie. And when it was January of 2015 or December of 2014, whenever I found out the title of The Force Awakens, I was like, mm, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. Like, if you put them in numerical order, you get episode six is Return of the Jedi, and then only just episode eight, just two two movies later, it's The Last Jedi. It does feel a little bit abrupt. Um, I will say, based just on the title alone, I like the phraseology of The Last Jedi more than The Force Awakens. Um, It does sound ominous could be referring to the characters that we know, could be referring to something else. I'd like to point out the idea that Jedi is both singular and plural, so it might not be referring yeah, that's a really good to point. one character. That's a really good point. Yeah, and I'm kind of there with you, like, having grown up with The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, I have a certain love for those, just because yeah. they've always been there. But, yeah, none of the titles have ever really blown me away. Like, Phantom like, like before it was rebranded as A New Hope, Star Wars was a great f***ing title. And you know what? It's still a great f***ing title. It's so evocative. You know what I mean? And and, and so, but beyond that, and, and I think in, with retrospect, The Empire Strikes Back, when you think about it in the context of the story, has a sort of like certain grandeur. And I guess I don't have too much of a problem with The Return of the Jedi. I mean, you know, they're just, at the time, I'm sure they just felt like really awkward and unlike anything we'd ever heard before in terms of uh, of titles. So so I, I don't want to be too harsh on it. It just seems like when it's when I'm just when it's rolling off the tongue, when I'm thinking of sequentially the, the titles, it just always strikes me that it's like, ah, it just hits the ear a little bit wrong. But you know what? Attack of the Clones is a dumb name for a movie. The Phantom Menace is a dumb name for a movie. So I'll spot them this because, and we'll talk about this further, I think Disney and Lucasfilm have, have earned the right to title it however they want, and obviously they want to make this as broad and inclusive. But, you know, it does kind of, the, the wheels start to spin in my head because the turn in my head because I'm just like okay well what does that mean because like I feel like in terms of at least this Skywalker saga is that what you people are calling it the mm-hmm. Skywalker saga yeah. like there's still a movie to go after this so what the hell does the last Jedi mean 
You know, like, are we really coming to like an inflection point with the Jedi that are left and like how it's going to be resolved? It just seems like it just seems like a very stark thing to say. It, 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 I mean, granted, middle chapters are always attack of the clones aside because it's kind of a fundamentally dumb movie with a fundamentally dumb title. Like middle chapters, we're presuming that they're always going to be the dark, complicated ones. You know, like, mm-hmm. again, I, I hearken back to like Two Towers and whatnot. Ryan Johnson apparently had that title right from Jump when he was working on the first draft of the script like he knew okay. right away that, that that was going to be the title i don't know if that gives you any indication of what they, they might have intended probably not um getting back to what you said before for it's many many faults of attack of the clones i have always been a little bit more forgiving just of that title i think it at least sounds a little bit sort of like a pulpy type of like crazy b science fiction movie and it at least feels to me a little bit more in the spirit of empire strikes back return of the jedi attack yes. of the clones okay. has it evokes a little bit of that feeling it, it could it be better yeah because i always want to call it attack of the 50 foot clones yeah exactly make, i still want to make fun of it but i'm more forgiving of it than sure. some of the others um, and we certainly don't want to you know in terms of the could it be better mm-hmm. you don't want to jump down that rabbit hole with that yeah, movie yeah. but like so. sure i i i think i will spot you what you're saying i think what you're saying is probably correct again like like this is all speculation until you know the plot of the movie reveals itself and i think that one of the heroic journeys i'm going to be on in 2017 is to remain spoiler free it, it's it's gonna it's always gonna be odd but like i'll tell you what the watching the force awakens it rewarded its title and i get it it mm-hmm. still might not have been the title i would i would choose but like many people i end up liking despite disliking their name uh, I assume I'll get over it if it's good enough. It's right. just, it's an odd name. Uh, it's a really odd name. But you know what's a good name? Rogue One. <laughs> There's a good name. You know what I mean? Like, I think they knocked out of the park with that name. That name is, is like, gritty, and it, like, it feels like, all right, we're on a dark, foreboding journey. This one is like, what does this mean? Because it could go in many different directions, and maybe they just want to keep us guessing. I don't want to play the game of speculating who the la- they could be referring to, singular or plural, and I think you have a good point, because it gets me nervous about what they're going to do with Mark Hamill. It gets me nervous about, you know, who they're going to encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, you know, I-, I think that, would you agree that The Force Awakens, for as much, you know, as it was technically a part of the Skywalker saga, in terms of the Jedi mythology, other than Rogue One, I think it probably spent less time on the actual Jedi mythology than the other three, or even the prequel three, right? In terms of, like, training, and this is your place, this is who you are, Sure, there was the scene with like um, Lupita Nyong'o and Daisy Ridley when she finds the lightsaber. But beyond that, like, I feel like this next movie is going to be very Jedi heavy, and that's an obvious thing to say because of the title. But like, I feel like it's going to be very, and I'm violating my rule about spoilers. I feel like it, it could be very like Dagobah-like in terms of like Yoda teaching Luke about the ways of the Force. And I feel like maybe the the title is sort of a a breadcrumb for that. But I do feel like Force Awakens. As much as it hinted at what was going on, I don't think it was very heavy on Jedi mythology. And this one will be. All right. Well, let's move on. The next bit of news concerns the heartbreaking death of Carrie Fisher and the difficult position Lucasfilm finds itself in in the wake of her passing. Fisher had already filmed her scenes for The Last Jedi, but the studio sort of confirmed that her role as General Leia was meant to continue into Episode Nine. Now, earlier this month, it was rumored that Lucasfilm would employ the same type of digital effects used to replicate young Princess Leia at the end of Rogue One to include Leia in Episode Nine. Lucasfilm has since denied that rumor, stating that they have no plans to digitally recreate Carrie Fisher's performance as Leia. Is Lucasfilm doing the right thing there? 
I, I mean, a lot of that feels like it depends. What I would say is that, and again, this is going to be a large discussion when we talk about Rogue One, but like, I think that they pass the test in terms of CGI stuff in Rogue One. They pass the test to the point where it was reasonably credible and believable. But I would amend that to say that like, it's one thing to do it with Peter, not Peter Mayhew, Peter Cushing, I'm sorry. It's one thing to do it with a character that like, yes, is a relatively important part of the Star Wars story. But like, frankly, it's an actor that's been dead for 22 years and we were not really expecting where, you know, him being there. And like, it was just kind of a surprise and like, it was sort of a narrowly tailored thing. It's a lot harder to, even though they passed that test, and they certainly did with the Princess Leia character, actor at the end of Rogue One, it's a lot hard, It's a lot tougher of a needle to thread with a character as beloved as Princess Leia and as actress as well-known as Carrie Fisher and someone who had just recently passed away. I think the scrutiny would be relatively unforgiving. I mean, if it was me and I was in their position, I would feel it was like a, a lose-lose. And I, I just don't know how you patch that up. You know, a lot of this is going to be answered by, again, when we see episode eight and we see how prominent a role we had on it, because it's, I mean, she didn't really have a prominent role in The Force Awakens. Mm -mm. It was a relatively small role. You know, like fair to say that, you know, Harrison Ford and Daisy Ridley and John Boyega were the stars of Force Awakens and maybe Oscar Isaac and then Carrie Fisher in terms of or no, I mean, uh, then Adam Driver mm -hmm. and then uh, the little red haired Weasley kid and then uh, Oscar Isaac and then Carrie Fisher. So, like, we can only assume that she was going to have a bigger role in episode eight. But I just think she's too well-known. The death was too recent. And I think it would probably cause a lot more social media dust-up and, like, fan outrage using her CGI. Mm -hmm. But, Ryan, it's like, how do you, assuming she has as big, if not a bigger role in Episode Eight in, in, in Last Jedi as she did in Force Awakens, how do you patch that up with that's, not I mean, having using CGI? I mean, that's, that's my question because – my understanding was that she was planning she was going to be in episode 9 as well yeah uh, that was my understanding at least and I don't remember where I heard that I, I think actually I think it had been confirmed by Lucasfilm that that was the intention okay. so uh, unless she was going to factor in as a ghost or a flashback scene of some kind that assumes that she was going to survive the story in episode 8 The Last Jedi now do they change that at the end well I mean they still have 11 months to make some decisions in terms of the story if they want to Right. Principal photography is done, but they still have 11 okay. months if they want to change something. But the alternative is, do you kill her off off screen between movies? I mean, I thought about that. Like, how is that? How would that even work? Like I, you pointed out, I don't, you, it was one of the first things you said. Like, I, I think it is a lose lose situation. Like I, I might. <sighs> Unless they unless they change things and kill her off in episode eight, I think she needs some kind of presence in episode nine in the last one. Whether they recast her just for a tiny cameo or something, but I I, I don't know. I, I think like she's the emotional fulcrum of so much of what's happened. Even if she had a relatively small role in Force Awakens, like you can't like like you can't do that. Like it. it, it I think the only thing, I mean, here's the thing. There are 11 months left. You're right. Principal photography is over. I think they have to have some really hard decisions about how to handle this and handle it in episode eight. Mm -hmm. I think I think she needs to die in episode eight. And listen, I I'm fairly certain you're the expert and you should correct me if I'm wrong. The Disney reshoots that happened with Rogue One, mm -hmm. they happened with... They certainly didn't happen like two months before the movie was released, but like they probably happened around this time in the lead up to Rogue One, right? We started hearing about it last summer. 
the first teasers and trailers had come out, and the first teaser for Rogue One came out in April of 2016. That had already come out before there was wind of reshoots or anything like that. So they did it like within six months of the movie's release. So, like I said, like if they want to make that decision, they have time. I think that's I think that's the best. And you know what? I'm ashamed to say that I hadn't even seriously considered it until you were talking about it now. But I kind of think dealing with it in Episode Eight is the best of a bunch of crappy options that way but the problem is even if you deal with it in episode eight it changes a lot in episode eight without knowing anything about how how the episode eight storyline unfolds assuming that the original storyline is that she survives in episode eight and i'm assuming she does Mm -hmm. then dealing with the killing her in episode eight would necessarily affect it would cause other reshoots Mm -hmm. you understand like it would be sort of like a domino effect with regard to episode eight and like it's fine because it's like it's still January now and they have plenty of time to like make those patches. But like you can't do it off screen in episode nine. You can't do it in between episode eight and have it happen off screen in between episode eight and nine and then refer to it. I mean, it's one thing. So I'm going to be great. I just I'm had gonna... a terribly morbid thought of that. Just explaining her death in the opening crawl of episode nine. Just like <laughs> surprise. Princess Leia died. Yeah, like, like, like it, no. it's, it's there, you can't do that. Like, it's hard enough when it happened. It's happened on, in television shows mm-hmm. that you and I have both appreciated. Um, you know, so here's an analogy. And again, I don't want to take this too far off track. But like the 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 J.J. Abrams produced uh, Star Trek reboots when Leonard Nimoy passed away, and Leonard Nimoy was his death happened. Off, you know, spoiler alert, guys. In the latest Star Trek movie, his death happened off screen, mm-hmm. and it felt appropriate. But that was because Leonard Nimoy, as iconic a figure as he was in the Star Trek universe, in these Star Trek reboots, he was a, still a relatively minor character. Well, I, I'd go even further than that. That version of Spock, the sort of prime Spock, whatever it was, like the Leonard mm-hmm. Nimoy Spock, his story was done. Like, we weren't expecting yes. any more adventures of that one. The thing yes. about Princess Leia is there's still, like, after The Force Awakens, we presumably have at least two more things that that character should do in the movies. Yeah. We're expecting that she will meet her brother Luke again. Yeah. Whether or not that happens remains to be seen. I mean, Han, no never, Han never got to see That's Luke a CGI. Again. No way can that happen. Right. And then her son, Ben Solo, Kylo Ren, is she ever going to have a scene with him? And if they were banking on that, like the, that emotional scene, that emotional moment for episode nine, that screws up a whole lot if they never have a scene together now. Yeah. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that. I'm ashamed to admit, like, that hadn't even occurred to me. But, like, again, that alters so much of the alchemy of what's going to happen. And that's why, like, if that is the best way to tell the story... I might prefer them to recast her or do some kind of CGI manipulation or something. If that if that is the best story that they can tell, I might have more fidelity to that than the actress. And well, that's a you, tough wouldn't call. you agree? It doesn't. But wouldn't you agree that like if they are going to go that route, and as you say it out loud, it feels like that's an option. I mean, that that's a viable thing to do, although Lucasfilm says they're not going to do it, so it seems like a non-starter. But, like, wouldn't you agree that if they did do that in this day and age, people would just tear it to shreds? Like, yes. like Tar- Governor Tarkin is one thing, and Princess Leia for, like, ten seconds at the end of Rogue One is one thing. Mm-hmm. But, like, doing that to Carrie Fisher, like, I just feel like it would engender, unless it's done meticulously, unless, unless the tech, I mean, there were some glitches with Tarkin here and there, um, and I think the Princess Leia character appeared so briefly that, like, we weren't really able to scrutinize it, mm-hmm. although having seen the film four times, I can tell you that uh, I 
I was still impressed as I reviewed the actress playing her. But like, I feel like it would be subject to like such withering scrutiny and such blowback. It would be tough. But so I guess the question is, Ryan, like if our two viable options are if it's so integral to the story and like having that emotional impact of like having her meet up with Kylo Ren or whatever the, the ending of that, the culmination of that arc is. When you weigh the cost and benefits of having her appear via CGI in, in episode nine versus dealing with it in episode eight and doing extensive reshoots and taking the chance of like foregoing that denouement, I don't know if I'm using that denouement word correctly, what's the choice that you make? And I think that I'm almost ready to deal with it in episode eight. I take, you know, there's still an emotional outcome that can be earned with the Luke character. And I think that maybe there's a redemptive arc that can be earned between Kylo Ren and Daisy Ridley because they're the ones we're invested in now. I guess my, you know, my, my cop out is that like, hey, we spent the last year talking about how we're investing in these new characters now. They're the big emotional arc that we can, you know, sort of hop on board for. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to get too tied up in knots about how to deal with, with Leia, although all the problems that you and I have talked about are very real. Yeah. And I don't know how they resolve it without creating a lot of awkward, dramatic beats or pissing on the sanctity of, you know, an actress's estate and her livelihood. You know what I mean? And just it's just like, yeah, how do you do CGI? And like, if you're doing the CGI, like, do you, if you're a complete jackass as a marketing executive and producer, do you clean up like a lot of the stuff about like her aged appearance that apparently bothered so many people in like Force Awakens? Like what standard are you being held to? It's just opens up a lot of icky stuff that I don't necessarily want to deal with. And I can only hope against hope that like they have a clean way to deal with it. And I'm, I fear that they don't. I don't know if there is a satisfying answer. I certainly can't think of one. Um, yeah. So I'm just grateful that like the ones we're meant to care the most about at this point are Ray and Finn and Poe. But it's not going to take that sting out of how they're going to do because it, it will still feel unearned when whatever cu emotional culmination happens with Leia happens. They're not going to find a good solution, so I think they have to find the most painless one in this case. Yeah, but, and yeah. you know, it's 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 in the problems that come with the death of an iconic individual in Carrie Fisher. Mm -hmm. This is you know not the most serious. problem problem but for our purposes it really sucks right and I, I think she would have been distressed at you know sort of the conundrum that had happened and no one expects anyone to die when they're 60 years old and but you know we're reminded that this is the risk that, that they take all right one more bit of news before we move on and this one is at least a little bit cheerier <laughs> I use that word intentionally. <laughs> Disney has confirmed that actor Woody Harrelson has joined the cast of the Han Solo spin-off film that is due to come out in 2018. Harrelson is apparently playing a sort of mentor figure for young Han. Other confirmed cast members include Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo, Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian, and Amelia Clark in an as-yet-unnamed role. Quick thoughts on the casting of Woody Harrelson or any of these other characters or actors? Well, I mean, uh, on the casting of Woody Harrelson, I think it's a masterstroke. I think, you know, uh, side note, you and I are, are are also big fans of Harrelson's work on Cheers, mm -hmm. which he deservedly won an Emmy for. Uh, and I also think, in addition to being, you know, sort of iconic and, and sort of well remembered for that for his role on that long running show, it's also worth noting that like Woody Harrelson is a legit movie star, but also someone who's been a bit of a chameleon. Mm -hmm. His, you know, I, when you think about the range that he showed in a wide variety of movies, from you know, White Men Can't Jump <laughs> to like getting Oscar nominated for like The People versus Larry Flint, the and The Messenger, and like you know, working with the Coen Brothers in No Country. For 
for all men. And like, this is not his first appearance in a franchise. He was very good in the Hunger Games movies. He's had a, yeah, he's you had know? a resurgence lately with True Detective and everything. Oh he's God, be, he forgot he's, about. He's yeah. going to be in the next Planet of the Apes movie, uh, yeah. which looks pretty. He's good a so. magnificent, yeah. magnificent actor, and I think that it's a real coup to land someone of his uh, reputation and his skill. So, like, I mean, I think I think Woody Harrelson is value added to any project that he's in, mm-hmm. and I think that the the sort of persona, you know, I can't speculate on the kind of character he'll be playing, but like again, his sort of persona as an actor in terms of the characters he's been playing, offbeat, gritty. Um, I think that kind of tacks well with both the Han Solo character and the type of movie that would explore the origins of a Han Solo character. And, and you know, he's a really good actor. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break to play a promo for another podcast. When we return, Omar and I will delve into a sort of state of the Star Wars union as it stands in January 2017. Don't go away. Do you think of yourself primarily as a singer or as a poet? Well, I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. <laughs> You may call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression, while war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe. Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio, but a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the Golden Age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. Since the acquisition of Lucasfilm by Disney in 2013, the studio has produced two new Star Wars films, 2015 Star Wars The Force Awakens and 2016's Rogue One A Star Wars Story. Each of those movies was the domestic box office champion of their respective year of release, with The Force Awakens pulling in a worldwide haul of over $2 billion and Rogue One recently passing the $1 billion mark. Disney bought Lucasfilm for a reported $4 billion, and now they've made roughly 75% of their money back on just two movies. With that in mind, how would you grade Disney's handling of the Star Wars franchise from a business perspective? Well, listeners of your old podcast will note that like, I was a little bit trepidatious. Uh, I, was, I was a little bit nervous about like how this would play out, both from a financial standpoint and from a creative standpoint. From a financial standpoint, I mean, you have to say it's sort of been an unqualified success. So in addition to the, I think it was $2.06 billion worldwide gross for Force Awakens. I think $1 billion it just passed worldwide for Rogue One. 
Uh, Force Awakens is now the number three all-time, uh, unadjusted for inflation, so relax, all you all you people that want, <laughs> want to point out those distinctions. Uh, it's number three worldwide all-time for uh, uh, worldwide box office receipts. And while st- and even though it's still technically in theaters, Rogue One is number 27 worldwide all-time after a month and 11 days, which is, like, phenomenal. I think that when you add in the f- – I mean, listen, they're still going to spend a lot in terms of marketing costs, and there's still some money to be recouped. Um, but when you throw in the fact that, like, they – are, have a number of movies yet to produce in the pipeline, as well as the pending, you know, whatever the fifth Indiana Jones movie is and whatever all the assorted tie-ins with that are. From a financial standpoint, it's been an unqualified success. And I don't think, you know, anyone really thought that it would be a huge, huge risk financially. I, I had a few concerns, but, like, yeah, I, I think it was really, I think it was kind of a bargain for Disney looking back on it. I, I I expected these movies to do well financially, but The Force Awakens numbers in particular blow me away. And even with Rogue One, a movie that, like, you had to expect there was going to be some kind of drop-off after, you know, the, the receipts of Force Awakens and the fact that this isn't really directly tying into the main story, but, like, its numbers are, are unbelievable, especially in a landscape that is basically just superhero movies and large tentpole franchises both of their successes individually are are impressive and you know you can expect episode eight to have force awakens type numbers i'm going to go ahead and call it uh it's gonna out it's gonna outstrip the the box office receipts seats domestically and internationally of rogue one that's for sure and if it's even a little good and you know remember we have built-in loyalty to these new characters too so i have to admit i have to believe there are going to be some people a a large chunk of people that are like i want to see what happens with poe next and and little kids and whatnot so like yeah i i think the force awakens numbers are probably going to be a floor for episode eight definitely not a ceiling so yeah from a financial standpoint yeah it's i i think that shareholders should be very happy all right well that's the financial aspect of things what about the creative aspect are they on the right track in terms of producing quality product that will resonate and will stand the test of time? Yeah, like, so, I mean, it's always a dicey proposition to, like, talk about this after two films, you know, because it's it's been two films and we're promised four they, more. They've, con- right? they've confirmed at least three more. Um, at least three more, I mean, but, you episode, know. Episode 8, Episode 9, and the Han Solo spinoff are the ones that they have officially said they're working on. Presumably there is more, go- there is going to be more after Episode 9, but they haven't, yeah. they haven't so, said so what it is or they haven't said it. So that said, it's always, even if it's just, you know, a total of four or five movies, it's always a dicey proposition to, like, after two movies, um, because there are a lot of people involved, things could go wrong. There are a lot of, you know, directors and screenwriters going to be involved. But I would, I, I called the financial reports an unqualified success. I would call the creative aspect of it an unqualified success from the standpoint of like they have like I think Lucasfilm has like threaded the needle very well in terms of balancing the need to be responsible financially, the need to do all the fan service stuff, the need and the need to be creative and innovative. I think that and, and the need to flesh out well-developed new characters and well-developed stories. I think things might change, but I think so far Disney's handling of Lucasfilm like so here's the analogy I would use. When I look at how Disney has handled Marvel, I mean, I know that you're a big Marvel fan, uh, and I know that you were anticipating how Disney would handle Marvel. I think that in the landscape of how studios have handled franchises, I would put Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm and how they've handled Star Wars in the range of how Disney has handled Marvel. Granted, there are a lot more examples of how Disney has handled Marvel, and they've done a really good job. 
I think it's much more in that category, and I think it's much more in line with what Warner Brothers has done with the Harry Potter franchise, as opposed to, um, you know, I think Justice League is kind of low-hanging fruit, but I'm going to go there. I think as opposed to how Warner Brothers has done with Justice League, or um, Paramount has done with the Star Trek reboot, which is not terrible, but it's like, you can see increasingly it's like diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's it's sort of going back to the same well. And you could already see sort of a creative malaise or impatience as, as early as the second Star Trek movie. I think in terms of how they've dealt with characters and how they've dealt with storylines, uh, in terms of the casting, I think that's a really underrated thing that we need to talk about. Like the casting of these movies has been impeccable. I I, I like from a demographic standpoint, um, I, I like the fact that they've been fairly feminist movies. Um, yet at the same time, they have not made me care that much that like they're women, like they just happen to be women and that's the way it should be. Stop your, your main, make your main characters women all the time. So we get to the point that I don't care that they're women. That's the way, that's how it works. They hit it out of the park with Daisy Ridley or with the Daisy Ridley character. Uh, they hit it out of the park with the, um, Felicity Jones characters, um, and the, the rich supporting tapestry of story and characters that they've surrounded themselves with have been pretty great. So would you say that analogy is sort of on base? Like it's more in line with like Warner Brothers and Harry Potter and Disney and and Marvel as opposed to the other stuff? Or am I like sort of being a little too grandiose? No, I mean, I definitely think when Marvel or sorry, when Disney acquired Marvel, I don't think the change in their production was evident to a lot of people unless you really knew what to look for. But yeah. what they did sort of change, and, and outwardly they basically said, you guys have got a winning formula with Iron Man and Thor and Captain America. You know these properties. Fans like what you've got. We're just going to give you more money, expecting a lot more in return, to keep doing what you're doing. That was the sort of outward face of what their approach was. But I think if you actually yeah. look at what Disney did with Marvel is they turned it into a machine, a sort of yeah. cottage industry and a production level that feels very much more like a television show. And I think that's how they've been able to create 14 movies in this universe so far and have not had a flop. Now, some fans don't like all of those movies, but none of them have flopped. None of them have been failures. Yeah, and then like from a creative standpoint, a pretty good batting average. Yes, and I think that's because they've assembled – first of all, they've hired a lot of TV people. TV directors have directed about half of the movies since The Avengers – and they've gotten people who just kind of know how to do – they're hiring journeymen. It's like this is what this world is. You're here to shepherd the next chapter in this thing. And they built it on, on an assembly line. Now, in doing that, I think you have a consistency of, of content and of product and of quality. So I think once you hit that level, all of your movies are going to be good if they're good, but they are going to feel very similar. And I think some There's complaints, a ceiling is what you're saying. Yeah, some complaints against the Marvel movies is they, tend, they kind of are formulaic and they might be a little vanilla. Warner yeah. Brothers, I think, is trying to do – they are trying to recapture the magic of the Dark Knight. They're like, we want a movie that is adored by fans and also critics. We want a movie that will have people saying that should have been an Oscar nomination. So they're going yeah. to hire artists, artistic directors, and like and people to sort of like shepherd these products and everything. But like getting Ben Affleck but, to direct the Batman movie. Right. Yeah. But they don't necessarily have the mechanism to sustain this across a shared universe. So when they try to put all of that in the back end, it yeah. sort of falls apart. And that's why Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, and Suicide Squad have been narrative cluster f- 
Yeah. And, and they're just messy as hell. And I, I, I don't think they've, they're trying to be more artistic. They're trying to be more sophisticated than the Marvel movies. And I think they're overreaching because they also want to be as commercially bankable. They also want the billion dollar return. They kind of want to have it all. extremely rare. Like, yeah. Dark Knight caught lightning in a bottle. Well, yeah, I think what we are starting to see in terms of what Disney's doing with Star Wars is similar to their Marvel machine in that they've got these movies, they have their timeline laid out, they know what they're doing with all of these. But they're also, I mean, we saw it with Rogue One when they saw that there were some problems with the production or the development or they just didn't line up with what they wanted from the end result. They stepped in and they started doing these aggressive reshoots. I, I, it's funny. I, I would. I remember, like after we, after I saw that movie, uh, I went out for breakfast. I saw like the seven a.m. show, by the way, <laughs> on opening day. I was very excited. I went out for breakfast with my buddy, and we played the game of like, I wonder which scenes of these were reshot by Disney. Like after some marketing guy saw it and was like, nope, we got to insert these people, and we got to do this, we got to do that. And like, I'd be curious to get your perspective on that. But I think you're right. I think that the the Marvel analogy is a good one in the sense that like they're probably going to sacrifice swinging for the fences in terms of. Creating creativity but i think they're going to keep it at a consistently high level where it'll be entertaining and like engrossing you know we it takes the risk of like maybe not like being this like other of an otherworldly quality but the other thing is like because it's a mythology and it's you know it's origin story and everything there's still a narrow sandbox in which they're going to be able to play with anyway and and you know people have speculated about like who who is ray with who does ray belong to where is she from who is her family and it's just like there are only so many narrative avenues that you can go so I, I do think that bringing in different directors, like, okay, at first when I found out that, like, J.J. Abrams was only going to do Force Awakens and then step back, I was like, that's insane. I thought, like, the whole franchise rested with J.J. Abrams. I thought he would be the George, the next George Lucas. But as I, as I think about it, the process of making these movies is so grueling mm-hmm. that, like, it's probably not a bad idea to have, like, a set of fresh eyes come in on both the mythology movies and the standalones to, you know, sort of reinvigorate or bring a different perspective perspective into the same proceedings and again like i know we're talking about a lot of different franchises here but like i, I know that you're kind of a fan of the harry potter movies and like i thought uh, one of the master strokes that they made was bringing in alfonso coron to do that third one uh, the name of which you know i can't remember but like the one that like you know they was in safe corporate hands the first couple movies with chris columbus and then they aggressively started taking it in different directions and bringing in new blood Corone and then Mike Newell and then David Yates to bring different perspectives to, you know, stories that people knew, but injecting them with like a different vigor and different pacing. And I think, you know, I saw that with Rogue One. Um, I think having J.J. Abrams as like sort of a, a master in the wings is probably a good idea especially with some of these younger directors. It's a good thing to have these new people for whom Star Wars is sacred, but they're willing to still take risks, but also have a J.J. Abrams-like figure and a Kathy Kennedy standing in the wings to just gently guide them. Not in a weird George Lucas on the set of Return of the Jedi taking over the duties of Richard Marquand, but like trying to strike in that balance between, okay, here's your sandbox, don't get too far, do X amount of fan service, do this, do that. So I actually think, I think the Marvel analogy is good, and I think... Yeah, you're probably right. It's probably going to end up being more of a corporate assembly line than trying to take big risks. But because the story, the raw material is so rich, there's still a lot of stuff they can do with it um, that can still be magical, even if it's not like Dark Knight-esque. And I think part of the reason why they are allowing other directors to sort of fill in that and why J.J. Abrams isn't the director behind all of these is the more aggressive timeline that they're releasing these on. Historically, before these, there were three years between each of the Star Wars movies being released. 
yeah. when when Disney first announced these, it was The Force Awakens was as Episode Seven was going to be released in December of 2015. Episode Eight was originally scheduled for May 2017. Can you believe it that? was going to be the 40 year anniversary. Yeah. It was originally going to be that, and then they decided, okay, that's too quick. We need to push it back till December. It'll just be December will be our regular release time. So originally it was going to be instead of three years between the two big <laughs> saga number movies, it was only going to be 18 months. Yeah. And if you could imagine like a, even a, even a veteran director making movies with this kind of production that close together, he was like, no, I, what you're asking me to do is is impossible. Like just I'll, yeah, I'll like I think, out, I'll I, I think Peter Jackson did that, released those movies uh, in his succeeding years, but I think he, they shot all those movies simultaneously. Yeah, right? they did. Yeah, or, yeah, you, or if and, not simultaneously, like you know, like like back to back, they built all of that production time for the full project. So it's 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 grueling. I mean, like like even the way they're doing it now, it's still grueling for the actors and whatnot, but like I, I do think that, yeah, Abrams would have burned out, and I do think there's something to be said for like kind of bringing in not just different perspectives, but also fresh, young blood. Because we think of J.J. Abrams as this sort of, you know, pioneering person, and he is, but like, he's like also like 50, 51 years old, which, again, people in the podcast universe, and I'm not saying that's old, uh, you know, it's, it's fine, but like, it's also... In terms of like sort of the the kinetic energy of creative pastimes like filmmaking, it's pretty old. Like you are what you are, and like J.J. Abrams is a brand. J.J. Abrams is an excellent director, but like he is what he is. And I think bringing in dynamic people in their twenties and thirties and early forties to like give a different perspective. I think I, I didn't know who Ryan Johnson was when it was first announced, but like as I'm re- looking into his background and filmography, I'm, I'm excited because you know having this sort these sort of fresh legs with a familiar story is very, very helpful. I mean, there were many problems with the prequel trilogy, and I think one of them is that the same person was sort of given unfettered control mm. the whole time. Forget that it's George Lucas and his specific mistakes, but I think just, you know, you get locked into what your view is going to be, and it's always good to shake things up. So I think from that standpoint, this is like an excellent thing. I think Gareth Edwards has brought a, a really different sensibility to that movie and it showed the contour the creative contours of that movie showed the relentless grimness and darkness of that movie was obvious and i think it was a tribute to his pacing and, and sort of like his his brand so i think that i don't know you know it's always a dicey thing to make assessments create you know in terms of the creativity but like wouldn't you agree that like it's sort of been a qualified slash unqualified success in terms of when you balance out expectations of how what was going to happen when you look at how far from low creatively the franchise has come since the prequels mm-hmm. um, when you talk about the challenge of a balancing fan service b producing fresh innovative stories you know c casting well and 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 having you know like sort of keeping your special effects up to date. D, kind of hewing to the, the mythology that's laid out for you and acting within those confines, I kind of feel like they're threading the needle like decently well. I do too. And I, I think for the faults that I have had with The Force Awakens and with Rogue One, the problems I have had with them, and sometimes it's funny, like occasionally they veer too much into fan service and that's when it sort of takes me out of the story, whether it's The Force Awakens borrowing so heavily to some point, some people would say it basically just plagiarized the plot of, of Star Wars to a moment yeah. like in Rogue One when everybody's leaving and we just do this cutaway to C-3PO and R2-D2 just having the, this little joke moment. I was like, we didn't need that. I, yeah, I, know I, I call that a Disney reshooting drinking game moment. Yeah, those type of things kind of like take me out. But, but the other things, I, yes, I have been very impressed with what they have done and I think – 
for Rogue One, I, I do think it it distinguishes itself. It does not look like the other movies, and that's part of what it, its purpose was. It was supposed to feel like this is a, a movie in this world, in this galaxy, but yeah. separate from the others. And it looks distinct. It feels distinct. It does. Um, it has a different kind of pace, a different kind of energy, and just a different tone. And I think that is where the movie really succeeds. You said you saw Rogue One four times. Did like were those four prior commitments, or did you really like the movie that much? Three times were I really liked the movie that much. One was a prior commitment, which was fine. I was happy to see it again, and like whatever, I'll see it again. I'll see it a fifth time, sixth time, seventh time. I don't care. It was good. It did reinforce some red flags or possible points of concern that I have in terms of the franchise in the hands of Disney moving forward. And I wanted to sort of plumb your thoughts on that. Okay. Um, so, so, for instance, with, in terms of Rogue One, one thing I would say is that as much of a tremendous success it was, you know, and I think the critics were pretty favorably disposed upon it. And I remembered you dashed off a pretty quick podcast after you saw it, um, where, and I think everyone was pretty favorable. And, you know, I, I largely felt the same way. I will say that, and I don't think anyone has really tackled this as much. I was talking to a good friend of mine, Jake, who's a really smart guy and like had a really good observation, which was love the movie. It does make me concerned about the future of this franchise under Disney from the standpoint of, I don't think they've yet proven they can tell a standalone Star Wars movie. And I was just like, whatever do you mean? Like, this was the definition, Rogue One. This was the, the very first standalone movie. This was the definition of a Star Wars standalone movie. And he was like, but was it really? And, and you know, my ace in the hole was always that, like, hey, this was the first movie where I didn't have to wade through the Skywalker saga. Mm -hmm. And so that on its own qualifies as a standalone movie. And, you know, my, my friend's point was just like, okay, but, like, when you look at the constituent parts added up together, doesn't it really feel like episode 3.5 mm. as opposed to, you know, a, a legitimately standalone movie? Because so much of the narrative force and thrust depended on the fact that the plans were going to get to where they were going to get to. And, you know, so much of it tied into Darth Vader and Governor Tarkin and the construction of this fearsome Death Star that we knew about, the implications of which we knew about, we knew about its destructive capability. So, so I don't. So his point was, I think you know, they, it, it, you know, right up into the point where like Darth Vader had a weirdly prominent role in Rogue One, and which I enjoyed. I was fine with. I mean, his dumb choking pun aside, I was very happy with Darth Vader's appearance in Rogue One. But like that said, it did feel a little bit like a crush right onto like the ending scenes with the Counselorship, which again I thought were wonderful. Um, but at the same time, there was no. I don't think it proved that like this is a standalone story, like like a a Boba Fett standalone story. That's a standalone story where it's not necessarily. We just know he needs to live so he can go on and hunt down Han Solo. Mm -hmm. But like, is this interesting enough on its own merits to warrant its own story? And like with Rogue One, I think my friend's point was like that's a very qualified yes because so much of it depended on what would happen in A New Hope and what we knew would happen in A New Hope that I don't think it's actually a standalone movie. Interesting. And so it, it's still, I, and his point was it remains to be seen whether Disney can actually pull this off. That's an interesting – and I kind of I, – I, I definitely get where he's coming from and I might agree with that because there is so much uh, of the movie. And I would say the better part of that movie is the last half of the movie once they're on the mission in Scarif and they're – like the whole heist slash like battle and like war scene at, like that dominates the last act of the movie. I think that is the better part of the movie and so much of that – there is nostalgia in terms of the visual iconography and what we're seeing and how it relates to the classic Star Wars. 
and just like the energy of knowing we're getting to that moment. So I can I can definitely see and, and kind of agree with that. Yeah, like I, for the purposes of the movie itself, I don't think it's a big deal. Like I liked it a lot in terms of like some grander theory on what it means for their ability to pull it off in the future using raw material. And I'm thinking specifically of like a Boba Fett movie. Not necessarily a Han Solo, because I think too much of a Han Solo movie is going to be tied up in the same issues that a Rogue One would have. But, like, I, I, it still remains to be seen whether they can pull it off. It's fine if they could still result in an enjoyable movie. No skin off my back, fella. But um, it does kind of portend, like, oh, are they going to keep going for using that same narrative crutch? So I guess I would turn it back on you and say, if you were going to play that drinking game with me, huh, I wonder which of these movies were, like, specifically reshot by Disney— Again, if you know for sure, tell me. But, like, I, I know what I think were the Disney reshoots, but they're not based on anything other than, like, conjecture and my good common sense. If you go back and watch the first teaser, again, the one that came out in April of 2016. Yeah. That first teaser, I don't know if any shot in that teaser is actually in the final cut. Okay. I don't know if any of them are. Okay. Um, now, I have heard one of the things that Gareth Edwards would do is like while they were on set, while they were filming, he would just get a random idea and think of something, you know what, I have an idea for a shot and I don't know where it's going to fit into the story, but I like this visual. Maybe it'll be in a trailer. Maybe I'll find a place for it. And he would just grab an actor or two and say, stand here. And like, like the last shot of the first teaser, Felicity Jones, like she's got her Imperial gunner outfit, but she's got a helmet off or whatever. And she's standing in a hallway or a tunnel that sort of looks sort of like something on cloud city or on the death star or something. That shot is not in the movie. And uh, apparently like according to Edwards and Felicity Jones, they're like, yeah, I don't know if it was ever supposed to. I just kind of like, like I, I closed my eyes one day. I saw that shot in my head, and I was like, "I want to film that tomorrow morning." Okay. Um, so there were things like that, but there was also like, and, and this is an aspect of the sort of machine aspect of where they're going with this that I wonder does kind of raise some red flags with me, and I wonder if they are moving too quickly, and I wonder if they they are thinking about the the final result sort of later. But apparently. The way this one was shot was they did not have like a full finished script polished off when they started shooting. And there were a lot of scenes where they got there and it was either Gareth Edwards or it was one of the guys who came in to help shoot some of the reshoots or something. And they just gave actors and scenes a couple of different line readings of like, say something like this. Okay, we'll try it again. Say something like this or, or something a little bit different. And they're like, we're going to put this scene together in editing. We don't know what the point of the scene is going to That's be yet. great. That's great. That's so, so that's like a curb your enthusiasm type thing. And, and I would say that, like, again, for the purposes of this movie and for the purposes of Gareth Edwards and the great actors that he had, that's fantastic. I guess I would just say I don't know if I recommend that as a strategy moving forward, right? Well, like and they, made it, better... they made it work this time. Yeah, right, or, exactly. Or I, I don't know because I I do have some problems with the story in like the first half of the movie that I feel is very chunky and you've seen the movie four times. I've only seen the movie twice compared to when I saw The Force Awakens seven times. Yes. Um, the last two times that I saw it, I, I was going just because I wanted to see it seven times, and I wanted to be able to say that I did. But this You've time, grown since then. Yeah. With Rogue One, I saw it opening night, yeah. and then I couldn't see it again right away because I had a uh, I had to get on a flight to Ireland. I was there yeah, for you were a week, overseas, yeah. and then I came back and I got sick right before the holidays, so I don't think I saw it a second time until... Right around New Year's, I think I saw a Matt. You had like a good like two weeks, three yeah. weeks in between. Yeah. But the thing was, when I saw it the second time, I didn't 
pick up on things that I missed the first time. Okay. Like, and it was kind of weird, like the first hour and I was kind of thinking, I was like, I don't know if this movie has a lot of rewatch value, at least like for me. And again, it wasn't until like, you know, the second half where it really, I, I kind of got into the action of it and I just allowed myself to be carried away. It was still entertaining. But after that, I was like, hmm, I don't need to see this again until it comes out on video or digital or something is when I'll, I'll get it. Like, and that was it was a little bit distressing. I was like, because it wasn't boring, but I just felt like I got the full experience the first time around. Well, I mean, there are inherent limitations. I mean, I don't necessarily, yeah, it's like, so I, I don't think you're saying that makes it like a, like a not very good movie. But I mean, you have to understand, like, and I think you'd be the first one to agree with this. There are inherent limitations in that specific story and the way it was told to foreclose that 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 are going, probably by necessity going to foreclose someone from being eager to like see it again and again and again. In that, like, it's ultimately a disposable storyline about disposable people, as cruel and awful as that sounds. So even in its in its in its greatest intention and in, in its greatest manifestation. There's a ceiling there, mm-hmm. right? So there's no like ongoing mythology. Now I'm not suggesting that there needs to be an ongoing, you know, the hope of seeing people in other movies to keep you seeing a movie again and again and again. But it certainly doesn't hurt. And and because listen, this was a storyline that we knew going into the movie. Uh, this was a storyline that we knew going in that played out exactly in the movie as it was intended to. But we knew the broad contours of the story. It was not an incredibly original story. It was just done very well, but it had characters that, like, we were not that invested in by design. They, we weren't not invested in them because they were poorly told, although I did get into a fight with a friend of mine recently who said that, like, oh, there were too many people on the Rogue One ship, too many ancillary characters. They should have just focused on Jin Erso and um, Diego Luna's character and just done away with the rest. But, like, I think the thing is is that, like, no matter how great Jin Erso is, and she's great, no matter how wonderful and luminous Felicity Jones is, and she is both of those things— at the end of the day, even in, in their best intention of telling the story, she's still just a cog in a wheel. Yeah. And, you know, with a story that, like, lays out fairly well, paint by numbers, and, spoiler alert, everyone dies. And, you know, it's not... We're not really brought on in terms of, like, the emotional impact of those characters. We're brought on in terms of, like... I mean, you might disagree with me. The richness of those characters is not something that we're supposed to plumb as much as we are the intensity and enjoyment of the journey and the action. If we're going to do that, I just feel that there's probably like a low ceiling on rewatchability the way you talk about it. Like, yeah, I can see why a reasonable person is not going to see it seven times. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make it bad. I, I'm just saying that like it was a movie that got away with a lot of lazy tropes because they could, because like it was, it still had a compelling quality to it. But it is the kind of movie that's designed to when you watch it again and again, it's like, hmm, you know, it just kind of is what it is. I just think when I get it on video or or I download digitally or something, when I watch it again, I have a feeling I'm going to I'm going to skip over all of the scenes with Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, like talk about a waste of you know, like and this is what so so this is going back to like the Marvel analogy with Disney. This is what I'm starting to worry because like the more I think about it, the more I think casting is like so important. And like so I you know I'm very I was bouncing off the walls about like Woody Harrelson being a part of this cast, and we were kind of wringing our hands about what they're going to do with Carrie Fisher. But, like, you want to be careful. If there's one thing I would fault Disney with in terms of the Marvel stuff, it's, like, sometimes they veer into stunt casting a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think Forrest Whitaker is, like, a fine actor. I don't know why they needed him for a role like that. I don't think it was, in a set, uh, like, that important of a role. 
And I don't think Forrest Whitaker is enough of a drawing card for people to be like, well, I was going to sit this one out, but Forrest Whitaker's in it, so I'm going to... No, like, I, I, it was a curious casting choice, and it was sort of a thinly drawn character. I don't know what they were necessarily going for. And I think that, like, that kind of stunt casting, if you can call Forrest Whitaker a stunt casting... I don't know what you gain out of that. And I do kind of worry about like stockpiling these oncoming movies with like cam with distracting cameos. Again, if you go back to the early teasers and trailers, the first time we see Forrest Whitaker, like in the first teaser trailer, he's got short hair. In the mm-hmm. final cut, he does not. Like he's got dialogue and lines to like Jin or to somebody like in the early teasers and trailers that is not in the final movie. I have a feeling all of his stuff was reshot. That is crazy that you say that because, like, honestly, gun to head, I would never have guessed that. I would have guessed it was just like I, I'm. I really am curious. I'm. We're going to come down on what was reshot and what wasn't. For instance, like I think all the Jimmy Smith stuff was Disney being like, "Hey, you know, we got we got to get we got to get a, like a clear thematic linkage. We got to shove Jimmy Smiths in there. As Jimmy Smiths goes, so goes this movie." It was such a disappointment. I have wanted that character to be something relevant for. 20 years and that's just uh, again a waste it's like have him do something have him be an inspirational figure in this movie and he's not and it's yeah and he like he's if correct me if i'm wrong but like when he leaves the movie he's going off to his death right yeah so i mean i'm not really sure and i love jimmy smith and i was so hopeful about the character of bail organa but like i'm not really sure a i mean would you agree that like it was reasonable for me to suspect that like the jimmy smith stuff was like disney being like hey we got to reshoot these we got to make the linkage more explicit because uh, if you actually look at like the, the the camera angles of when he comes in and like the initial rebellion meetings and like his meeting with uh mon mothma before he sets off for Alderaan, it just seems like very hastily thrown in. I think you're probably right. Um, I don't think because his part is so easily excised from the movie, yeah. it would not surprise me if that was another sort of like last minute. It's like we've got him for two days. Let's film this scene or this shot or whatever and have him standing around doing this and it'll just be a, another sort of connective thread between all the sagas and a reminder that the prequels did take place. Um, Let's have a clumsy reminder to Obi-Wan and Leia. Yeah, so like, like I'm, I'm very concerned about like casting because I think that there is going to be a, a default tendency to try to stockpile these films. And I'm just like, guys, you don't need it. You got Mark Hamill. You got these new characters that are fantastic. Resist the urge. That's something I'm, I'm very concerned about. There was one other thing that I was concerned about a little bit. How, I'm curious about, like, how much fan service they would have in episodes in, in, in like, The Last Jedi in Episode Nine, because of what the common prevailing wisdom among people I've talked to is, like, you know, they kind of got their fan service thing out of the way mm-hmm. with Force Awakens. But then when I think about, like, the callback to, like, Mos Eisley in Rogue One, I just kind of cringe a little bit. And, like, you know, you might disagree, but I kind of feel like the Darth Vader scene with direct Krennic was also a Disney reshoot. Maybe. What what has really sort of struck me about what they have done with fan service is they do have a lot of visual callbacks and things, but and and they have these moments within the movies themselves. But strangely, it doesn't feel like they're leaning into that in the marketing. They kept Vader pretty quiet in the marketing for Rogue One, considering that is the, the one character, like the one icon that you could use to sort of pump this movie. Because we're like, it's a movie that doesn't have Luke, it doesn't have Leia, it doesn't have Han or Chewie, it doesn't have the new characters you just fell in love with last winter. You know, it's not going to have a lightsaber duel at the end. What does this movie have that really sets Star Wars? Darth frickin' Vader. 
And his moment at the end, I think, brought a lot of people to their feet when he sort of cuts loose. But in the teaser, in the marketing, they never told any of his dialogue. Nobody knew that James Earl Jones was voicing him again. Like, there was just, like, one kind of brief little glance of him walking through steam. And it's like... Okay, so maybe he's not a big part of this movie. Like they weren't banking on Darth Vader to sell tickets yeah. for this movie. And yeah, so so like I guess inherent in that statement is the assumption that if Disney's ordering something to reshoot and insert more in of, then it's obviously something they want to clobber us over the head with in marketing. And I get the temptation to think that, but I don't necessarily think that has to be the case. I think that Disney might have wanted some nuggets in there to appease people, to get them to chatter while still keeping it under wraps. Before, maybe I'm just giving them too much credit. I don't know. But like while still keeping it, and I know that ethos goes against everything that they stand for but like it is plausible to me that disney would want to have a character like darth vader be way more prominent but also keep it a secret Mm -hmm. and have it be this oh my god wow moment and encourage people to maybe come back or tell people about so while not like having it in ads i think that's i think that's the point actually is i think disney knows that a lot of their box office returns for movies like this will be repeat viewing Right, right, so right. even if they don't have Darth Vader in in the <laughs> promotional material, people will see Darth Vader in the last two minutes of the movie just going nuts, yeah. and somebody in that theater will say, I'm coming back again tomorrow just to watch that scene again. And they know that a lot of their business is going to be repeat viewers. You know, Warner Brothers was expecting Batman versus Superman to make a billion and a half movies, and it fell only 50% of that, I think, because a lot of people didn't see the movie a second time. Yeah, yes. I think there's value in that proposition and while still keeping it under tightly guarded wraps marketing. I know it's our default assumption to be like, hey, they just kinda wanna, you know, shoot their wad every single time and, and, and clobber us over the heads with it in, in ads and trailers and marketing materials. But I do think you're right. There is sort of a, a strategy there that might pay off that involves reshoots. And, you know, honestly, Ryan, I think one of the big things is I want to believe that a lot of the Darth Vader stuff was shoved in at the last moment because I think that the encounter on Geonosis was tonally off. And, like, I, I don't know what the point of it was narratively. I don't know how well it fit in with everything else. Or maybe it just was a much shorter encounter than it normally would have been. But, like, I just don't want you to convince me that, like, that choking pun at the end was somehow the product of screenwriters as opposed to a marketing executive. I don't know. And part of my feeling on that goes to sort of my feeling that I started me thinking about the character of Krennic. Um, and I think yeah. Ben, ben Mendelsohn is a great actor. I think he does he's a wonderful job. As a kid, but he was one, he's one of those people who would say, I would show up some days without a script. And they would say, sure. here's three different versions of this scene that it could go. Do these three versions and we'll figure it out, you know, two months later when we're in the editing room. And he's like, all right, well, I'm, I'm a professional, so I'll do that. But you're not giving me any time to prep for who this guy is. And I, I don't know if I have much of a sense of him after this thing because we're told that the Death Star is his baby, that this is his project, and he's very protective of it and very proprietary. The problem is the first time we see the Death Star in Rogue One, Tarkin is already there. Tarkin has already pretty much taken it out from under him. So he's already sort of trying to claw his way back and trying to take it back. And I, I don't know if it's like showing the character already from a position of weakness or something and just, I, I don't know, I'm not sure... 
this totally leads into like probably the best joke I made all of last year when, you know, I was going to the 7 a.m. showing with a buddy of mine and we were talking, we were speculating about like what was going to happen. And he was just like, it's crazy that this movie is set apparently like because we knew at that point it was set right before A New Hope. And he was like, it's crazy that they're still dealing with like the construction of the Death Star right before A New Hope because like we saw the Death Star at the end of episode three, which was purportedly 20 years ago. And he was just like, what in Sam Howell could like could be the cause for because you know it wasn't just plans because I think we right. saw the plans in Attack of the Clones yes but we saw the actual and this was what kind of a narrative flaw because they're saying oh we've hit a snag in our Death Star construction but like we saw the actual weapon almost near full construction in in, in the end of Episode Three and then twenty years later. It's still kicking around, and my friend was just like, what could possibly be, be the explanation for something that was already constructed taking an additional 20 years, to which I said, well, you got to figure it's at least five years for the permits. <laughs> and then that led us to like constructing an imaginary alternative Star Wars movie about the city hall meeting where Vader would show up <laughs> demanding <laughs> that all the permits are in order and constantly being told to like wait his turn to talk and go to the back of the line. So yeah, I mean... I think the um, the callback to most Eisley, R2-D2 and 3PO, and like Jimmy Smith's, all of that stuff, I feel like, was either not at all in the original version or much shortened. But you got me thinking by talking about, um, you know, Forrest Whitaker. I, I do want to go back and see it to see where that fits in. But like, again, these are minor quibbles. I do think that like it, it does, it doesn't really answer the question of, can they do a standalone Star Wars movie? I don't think they've answered that question. I don't think they're going to answer that question with a Han Solo movie because of the nope. love for Han Solo. Now, what might separate that is the different cast of Han Solo. And and this brought up an interesting question. I was like, well, they've used CGI to recreate a younger version of Princess Leia and a younger version of Tarkin. Why do we need to cast another actor to play young Han Solo? Why can't they just digitally recreate a 25-year-old or 30-year-old Harrison Ford? Yeah, just take Ford stills a Ford from, like, American Graffiti Mm -hmm. or Apocalypse Now. That's not a problem at all. Like, yeah, no, I think that's, you know, and I think that's, it's it's a very dangerous road they could take, but it's also potentially a very creatively fulfilling role they could take. But, like, you know, when you think about, like, how they're going to do Han Solo and how that's going to link up with other stuff, it's a little bit far off. But, like, I bet even money they'd, like, have Jabba the Hutt make an appearance. And, and obviously Chewbacca will be, like, a common thread in there. So, like, maybe we don't know if they can make a standalone Star Wars movie. And maybe we'll never know because maybe too much of the Star Wars creative universe is going to be inextricably, inextricably intertwined with the main mythology. And, like, that's fine, and I do think it probably sets a little bit lower of a creative ceiling. But, like, hey, listen, we're two movies in. And if its trajectory is to be, like, the Marvel movies, which is, like, maybe shoot for the moon but, like, land on the stars, like, that's fine. Like, it, it's we live in a time where no one takes any risks whatsoever, and at least Disney is taking some risks. And by hiring in, you know, young hiring young filmmakers, bringing them in, bringing their twists on, like, a well-known stories. And, like, the execution of these movies is, like, uniformly not very good. So I'm fine with the Disney model. Let's just stop. And I just think my friend Jake is correct. Maybe we need to stop calling them standalone movies. And, and you know, and they can still be totally enjoyable. It's totally fine. But until they come up with those aha moments, like in a Boba Fett movie, where it gets me excited about that universe beyond how it links up with the, and, and you know, so so me and my, my friends and I are not like sitting around thinking, how does this link up with, you know, the, the Endor, you know, the Endor stuff on Return of the Jedi or like whose Rey's parents are. I, I don't think that they're going to be able to do that. Maybe they just can't 
cue away from the original, you know, the main story. And maybe that's okay. They couldn't do it in Harry Potter, and, like, that's fine. You know, I know there's some standalone Harry Potter junk, but, like, it's fine. Just, it, it just, but, but I would say call it what it is. Um, and you can have these linkages. They don't need to be super explicit like in Marvel. Just do your best and see what happens. But I do think that was an interesting point. And I do think that when push comes to shove, the mouse is always going to, to toe the financial as opposed to creative line. Two movies in, I am decently impressed with the finished product. And, you know, honestly, that's, I think that's all you can hope for. All right, Omar, I think that's going to be it for our discussion on the State of the Star Wars Union 2017, at least for now. Uh, but before you go, as every guest on the show, you must answer the Galactic Questionnaire. This is 2.0 because I retired the original version of this questionnaire last episode because it involved a question about Carrie Fisher and Princess Leia, and I didn't feel comfortable asking that question again. So, new set of questions for you. It's sure. the first time. Go. Question one, Kylo Ren's lightsaber or Darth Maul's lightsaber? Uh, I would say Kylo Ren's lightsaber because there's more mythology and meaning attached to it. Darth Maul's lightsaber is way more attractive, sold way more toys, and got a lot of fanboys to jump up and down. But, like, it, there's, no, there's no oomph there. There's nothing there, you know? It's just pretty to look at, much like myself. <laughs> Question number two, X-Wing fighter or TIE fighter? That is an excellent question, X-Wing fighters seem more versatile, and they seem like they can blast at you from more multifaceted directions. Plus, they blow up a lot less fast, and I've always wanted my death to be slow and torturous. Nice. We'll work on that. Question three. Better sidekick for Lando, Lobot or Nian Num? Which one is Nian Num? Uh, his co-pilot in Return ah! That guy. I love that guy. I feel like that guy is like the secret hero of the original trilogy. He's great. He's, he's supportive at the right moments. He's skeptical at the right moments. Like, I, I think, you know, you want, when you're in the foxhole, metaphorically or seriously, you want to be surrounded by guys like that. Lando's little friend. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> Question four. You're going away for a while and you decide to Airbnb your home. Who do you rent to? Jar Jar Binks or a family of Jawas? Well, I mean, say what you will about Jar Jar Binks, but I don't think anything he does would be malicious. Um, I think Jawas are in this, ugh, God, I hate saying this in the age of Trump. I think Jawas are intrinsically untrustworthy, shifty characters. Um, <laughs> but Jar Jar is just like your annoying little cousin. That's fine. I can fix Jar Jar. But like, you know, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with Jawas? Jawas could like maliciously mess up your, your, your living quarters. Jawas could like inadvertently get slaughtered. You know, like Jar Jar is dumb. You can work with that. I think Jar, like Jawas could lead to like the end of the universe. Although I know that Jar Jar ended up installing Palpatine, but leave me alone. I asked that question deliberately so that everybody has to defend Jar Jar in some way. Yeah. Question five. Would you rather spend a year working on Uncle Owen's farm or one night dancing for Jabba the Hutt? The pay is the same. Ah, that's a good one. Well, I'm going to take the Luke Skywalker perspective and say that, first of all, you've seen me dance. So I, I think it would be the ultimate service. Uh, but I do think that I will take the Luke Skywalker perspective of like, I always want to err on the side of like excitement and adventure as opposed to drudgery. Uh, so I'm going to go with being the dancer. All right. Number six, you're piloting a rebel snow speeder. Which celebrity do you want as your tail gunner? What celebrity do I want as my tail gunner? Who's I think the deck to your Luke? <laughs> Alf. Always Alf. <laughs> Good company, and like I don't have any reason to believe this, 
but I think he would be like an outstanding sharpshooter. <laughs> and hey, if there's a if there's a cat around, he is all over that shit. Imperial right. cats, beware. Final question: What is the first thing Luke says to Ray after the Force Awakens? Oh, I'm gonna <laughs> sell out and just be like, "Are those? Is that? Are those the power converters?" That's all I got. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, well, Omar, I want to thank you for being my guest on this episode of Give Me Those Star Wars. Uh, I'll definitely have you back on in a future episode. So thank you very much. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for uh, asking seven questions as opposed to five or ten. You're always keeping me on my toes. Last episode received new Twitter favorites and retweets from Aaron Henley, Alexander Osias, Bass Levesque, Bat at Shapirak, Between the Pages, Columnar, Codeman at Beware the Matman, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, Chuck Rodriguez, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Drew Holmes, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, FKA Jason, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks at Reading underscore Hicks, Illegal Machine, It's Plastic Man, John Boucher, John D. Knoll, Justice's First Dawn, Let's Talk MOTU, Longbox Crusade, Max Romero, Nathaniel Wayne, Not Guano Man, At Guano Man, RAD Adventures, Richard Field, Rolled Spine Podcast, Silver and Gold, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, and Warlord Worlds. New Facebook likes and shares came from Bass Levesque, Clinton Robinson, Chris Franklin, Chuck Rodriguez, David Foster, DeBeche, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, George Amaru, Gord Tolton, H. Daniel Reibolt, Jared West, James Murray, Jerry Schroyer, Matt Ev, Max Romero, Mike Gillis, Mike Peacock, Nicholas Prom, Pulp to Pixel Podcast, Rob Kelly, Ryan Bolton, Scott Cage, Sean Emmons, Sean Strawbridge, Shag, Siskoid, and Zoom Yukonori. Sean Strawbridge left a comment on the Facebook page saying, A great and touching episode. I was heavily saddened by the passing of Carrie Fisher and her mother, Debbie Reynolds. Like many fans, Princess Leia was an integral part of my childhood, and I was a wreck for a day or two following her death. In the fall of 2015, just a couple of months before the release of The Force Awakens, I had the chance to meet Carrie Fisher at a convention. She was every bit as feisty and wonderful as I had heard she was, and I cherish the memory of having met her and adding her signature to my Star Wars collection. I will always admire her honesty, beauty, and talents. She was Hollywood royalty and will be eternally missed. Rest in peace, princess. Very well said, Sean, and you're lucky to have met her when you did. If anyone else helped promote the show on Facebook or Twitter and I forgot to mention your name, I apologize for that oversight. Please let me know and I'll be sure to rectify the situation next time I get the chance. Moving on to the comments left at the Fire and Water website, which as always you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast, as well as a co-host on Midnight the Podcasting Hour and a recent guest on FKA Jason's Wild Pod. Paul said, Fabulous, thoughtful, and passionate contributions by all of your other contributors, Ryan. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Network said, Nice tribute. Thanks for letting me be part of it. Chris Franklin, also of the Fire and Water Network, said, Very heartfelt and touching. Thanks for letting us chime in. And Siskoid, also of the network, said, I knew at least one of you would say something that would get to me. Two or three did. Chris has it right. Heartfelt and touching, but some nice insights as well. 
I'm pretty sure the part that made Siskoid emotional was FKA Jason getting drunk and horny thinking about Leia's metal bikini. And who could blame him? Or either of them. David Ace Gutierrez said the last episode was moving. Darren Sutherland of the RAD Network, including Trekker Talk and other podcasts, said, Lovely episode, great guests, great discussions, great memories. Thank you for it. Michael Lane from Comics in the Golden Age said, Thank you again for letting me participate. It was very nice tribute, and I loved hearing everyone's contributions. Jeff R. said, Very nice tribute. And then he added, Gotta say, I've always thought the short for a Stormtrooper line wasn't sassing the enemy soldier, but indicating that Leia knows full well that the Stormtroopers are, if not still clones, recruited to a very strict set of body type standards to maintain the psyops impact of these armies of indistinguishable faceless soldiers, and thus already knows that these are not actual Stormtroopers, but potential allies, and sort of sassing said allies with the implication that if any of the officers they met had been paying attention, they would have known the same thing before they got there. Hmm. Interesting, Jeff. I never really thought about that. I, I never read that in her delivery of the lines necessarily, but it's interesting to speculate. And the last comment came from Brian Linton, a first-time commenter, I think. Brian said, It was good to hear everyone's thoughts, feelings, and memories of Carrie Fisher. All I can say is that I laughed, cried, and learned a few new things about this incredible individual. Thanks. You are welcome, Brian, and thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody, for listening and for leaving comments on the website or liking and retweeting. Your support of the show is fantastic and greatly appreciated. That's going to be all for this episode. Next time, a brand new guest joins me to talk about Star Wars Episode 3, but not the movie you're thinking of. Give Me Those Star Wars is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Give Me Those Star Wars. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Part of the theme music for this podcast is performed by the Evil Genius Orchestra from their album Star Wars Cocktails in the Cantina, available for purchase on iTunes and at Amazon Music. That and all other music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Give Me Those Star Wars is not affiliated with Disney or Lucasfilm, and I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. I want I want congratulations for completing this podcast sober, which is not a, a trait that every single one of your guests has had of late. So you know, I think that uh, I, uh, props to me. <laughs>